Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. On today's show, we're going to sit down with our weekly technology panel and discuss Tesla's production problems and potential cash crunch. The issue has really been coming to the forefront a few days ago during a very testy earnings call with CEO Elon Musk that more than a few investors found quite unusual. We're going to get right into that later on. Exactly. Uh, We're also going to chat about a local biotech firm that's actually doing very well at raising cash as it pushes ahead with plans to develop technology to produce 3D printed human tissue and even organs. And later on, BIB reporter Patrick Blennerhass is going to join the show to talk about China's efforts to go green. We know the country is facing severe issues with pollution and waste. It's trying to reverse many of the issues that brought it to this point. But how does it plan to accomplish this? First up, though, let's talk about technology. Joining us now for our weekly technology panel are Ali Pordad. He's the CEO of Progressa here in Vancouver, and Amiel Lake. She's entrepreneur-in-residence at E at UBC. She's also the co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. Amiel, Ali, thank you guys both for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having us. So Tesla, making news, but maybe not for the best of reasons. Ahead of its first quarter earnings results, the electric vehicle company continued showing signs it was struggling to meet production targets as Deadlines to pay off more than a billion dollars of U.S. in bonds creep closer. So, Ali, I'll throw this at you. Where exactly is Tesla positioned right now moving forward in terms of, say, liquidity, just production, just as a viable company that you would want investors putting their money down into? Tyler, I'm going to first uh, rewind to last year because we had this conversation probably about 12 months <laughs> ago when when Tesla was talking about the, the Model 3 for the first time and we were talking about some of the risks associated with it. And I think those risks that we identified then are actually happening now. Production problems uh, now resulting in potentially suppliers... Uh, you know, are not are not providing credit to them. Uh, I think the credit agencies are now saying stop providing credit to Tesla, and that's a big deal for a for a manufacturer of of auto of of, of automobiles. I mean, Is it at all possible though that a company that has such innovation could be stopped in its tracks? And what kind of historic issue would that be? It, so it, it will come down to the investors because what's going to happen with uh, with the supply chain getting constrained is that they're going to need cash and they're going to have to go back to the market and raise money and investors are going to have to keep writing checks. The price is going to go up because you know they're not achieving the production numbers that uh, he's been stating. And so the question is, will investors continue to write checks? If they continue to write checks, the company will survive. But if they stop, that's when it all comes crashing down. I mean, I, I worry... Uh, I worry a lot about Elon Musk. I don't spend a lot of time thinking of him, but when I do, I look at him and I go, this this is a guy that is not necessarily um, playing by most of our rules in the sense of how you deal with investors. And so he cheesed them off pretty quickly last week when he basically said, don't go, don't invest in my stock. You know, if if you're not really ready to risk your life, don't worry. Is that the way for a CEO to act now? I don't 
know if it's a way for a CEO to act, but it's certainly become uh, a more common mode of behavior. You see it in other executives ranting on Twitter, and you certainly see it with presidents. So um, it, it would not be my recommendation, but Elon is an inventor. He's an innovator. He is deeply passionate about what he is trying to achieve. And that spirit often is at odds with Wall Street. But yeah. what does it mean then when he has to go out and raise more money going down the road? I mean, when you were trying to raise money for your company, I mean, I'm not sure if you'd go and tell people, well, your questions are boneheaded or boring, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, as he was doing on this earn- earnings call. You could think that. Yeah, of but course. But you just can't yeah. say it. There's no thought bubble, visible thought bubble going over your head, though, at this point. Yeah, but money has no motherland. So, I I mean, I do believe he will be able to raise um, the funds. I don't know if we'll see a $35,000 Model 3 anytime soon, but no. there is absolutely a market and huge demand for what he's offering. And I think investors will see that. Look, you go back to when Mark Zuckerberg walked into a bunch of VCs in a hoodie and a pair of jeans. And that was, you know, counter to the the way you should approach investors. And he did extraordinarily well. And some of those, uh, some of those investors said no. Ali, is there any risk here that Elon Musk gets bored with Tesla? I, I mean, he already and has. Just, and, he already and, has in many respects. And kind of, you know, puts it off to the side and says, uh, I'm going to develop SpaceX. I'm going to do other things with my brain. Exactly. And, and SpaceX. Car, cars just aren't it for me. There's SpaceX. There's the Boring Company that the he started yeah. and has, you know, serious production now. It's it's actually, you know, high, high revenue generating business. Which he's funding through blowtorches, essentially, or and flamethrowers. That's one of the products. Yeah, flamethrowers is, is one of the yeah. products. But I, I mean, this is this is Elon Musk, and he has a following, and he's able to do that. But that's a risk for Tesla, and it's been a risk the whole time. I will make a prediction. I'm, I'll, I'm happy to make it publicly. Uh, I, I actually believe that this company will at some point go bankrupt, and mm-hmm. it'll get purchased by new investors, and the new investors will make Tesla very successful. If you look at all the automobile companies that are out there, the most successful ones, at least in North America, have all gone through a bankruptcy process. They were they had too much fat uh, around certain aspects of their supply chain, and they needed a bankruptcy process. But who's large enough to take it? Alphabet, well, Apple. Tesla, Tesla's market cap is is arguably overvalued. I mean, it's a 50, it's a fifty billion dollar market cap. It's the same size as Ford, but its production is probably one tenth of Ford's production. So it's it's already it's already an overly 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 expensive business. I think somebody should be able to pick it up and uh, at a good price at some point. Is it a little bit of a downtrodden story though for some of those investors that put in big bucks at the time they're going to have to if there's a bit of a fire sale when it comes to its assets it's that's, IP. that's business that's business that's business and, yeah. and that and it won't happen for a while and those investors have made a lot of money off tesla the stock has come a long way in three years and i'm sure they're doing well all right well guys let's talk a little bit about twitter here of course they made the big announcement everybody got a notice when you tried uh, getting into your account last week that uh, hey guys you better change your password immediately and, and don't just change it on twitter Change it on every single platform you've ever used that uses the same pa- password as well. They made it available on their internal systems in readable text. Th- this kind of seems like amateur hour. I mean, are, are we really just approaching the whole password thing wrong at this point? I, just this memorization across all these different accounts. I just wonder why we're still doing this the same way we've done it for uh, pretty much since computers have been around. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. We have definitely 
past uh, the best before date for text-based or visual passwords. We're at peak Even, password. Exactly. We're at peak, We're password, at peak yeah. password. We enter passwords for everything, and um, we know it's not secure. The technology to penetrate is by far outpacing the technology to secure. There are some cool things happening um, in the biometric space. I really appreciate apps that allow me to use my thumb th my thumbprint. Um, and then, of course, we'll start to see things like retina scanning and voice recognition, and, and that'll become more secure. But text-based stuff, no. Uh, I'm going to digress for just a second because you bring up, say, things like the, uh, uh, the touch uh, 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 value that we have on the phones. I... I could never get it to work for me on my iPhone. Like that, my thumbprint would never scan. You have no fingerprints. Well, I, you I went, dropped it in the oh toilet. My, I, I went to get my Nexus card. Did you burn your thumb at some point? And <laughs> um, they went to take fingerprint scans of me. The uh, the border security uh, guards there, and they're like, "Yeah, you've got really thin fingerprints. Like we can't get these oh, to scan." He's a vampire. Yeah. Oh, so vampire. I, exactly. I was like, "Oh, this is why the, this has never worked for me on my uh, phone." So he's, it, it, it's, a, it's another form of life from another galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just couldn't figure out. I could not figure out the technology. But I also think about kind of the biometrics that are going to be coming down the pike here with regards to, say, retina scanning, yeah. just facial recognition as well. No, I mean, I, I use Nexus and uh, the Trusted Traveler program when I'm coming back into the country. And the biometric scan of, you know, retinas, I think, is actually a really solid way to deal with it. I'm, I actually am a little skeptical, by the way, of biometrics of the retina scans. I can't believe that actually we all have unique ones. Right. But we supposedly do. Uh, yeah, they're, they're like fingerprints. Are they? Yeah. I mean, are they really? <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I, I wonder about the science there. I think for, for, for border security, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, for everyday practical applications, though, I think they need no. something. They just need something better. And I don't, I don't know what it is today. I, I feel like there's got to be some solution with artificial intelligence and machine learning. You, must, you should be able to predict what people are using these applications for I'd, and just I'd, secure it that way. I really wish that we could get rid of pins. Pins. Sure. like. That, that is crazy. I mean, that's so susceptible and so often uh, violated. And that's why I think we have still ridiculously high credit card interest rates. I, I think this is definitely an area, an industry that's ripe for disruption. Yeah. But I mean, at this point, I, I do like using password managers. The only issue is if you're using multiple devices, you have to have the same app installed over multiple devices. So it's just still frustrating that there's not like a practical option that has presented itself that everyone's coming on board with at this yeah, point. Two-stage authentication is not also a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so. Not practical. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of slow. It's slow moving. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, uh, I, I want to bring it down to Vancouver here. We just had uh, news come out yesterday that's uh, Aspect Biosystems. These are a UBC spinoff. They've just uh, drummed up another $1 million in funding for the commercialization of a product that they're developing. I've seen it in action before, 3D printed human tissue. It's an interesting prospect here. It's going to be used for, say, drug testing. It's going to be more effective than the cells you would use in a Petri dish. I spoke to the CEO a few years ago, and he actually said the moonshot for them is to develop human organs that would be 3D printed as well. Amiel, would you want to be patient zero for, say, an organ transplant using this sort of technology made in BC? Made in BC and an entrepreneurship at UBC company, I'd still want to be patient maybe two. Two. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but I, I and you want to make sure that patient one and zero are still there for it. Exactly. To talk to. I, yeah, I, I want to yeah. do a full yeah. test and yeah. see if they're still alive. But I, I think the technology is fascinating. Um, and I'd love to see it go into a place where you can print beef 
chicken and uh, produce some hopefully yummy tasting, sustainable food. Okay, the food aspect, that's I, I maybe bit wanted... perverse to talk about it. Well, I know. But... <laughs> I would probably venture to try like maybe uh, the, the organ transplant first before maybe the food one. Something about just the food yeah. artificially produced through 3D printer, I, I'm just a little bit wary of. It's like those people that... No, it's fabulous sci-fi. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's like it's the one pill. It's the... Uh, we already have Soylent, you know, which is... Mm. The first, the first yeah. thing that came to my mind was definitely, you know, replacing an organ. If, you know, imagine you have a cancerous tumor in yeah. an organ and you just pull it right out and replace it, right? It could, it, could, it could be a cure for cancer. Yeah. And just... Well, and let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that some of these early stage companies are faced when it comes to commercialization here. They've got a very cool technology, but they need another you know boost with regards to funding. Is Way this, more than a million dollars. I, well, right. a to million, get to organs, yeah, million, a million dollars is basically just keeping some lights on it. With yeah, at this point, I, is capital like the biggest you know hurdle that these early stage companies are facing? Are there other things in front of them, Amiel? Capital in. BC in Canada is absolutely an ongoing issue. There are very few sources for early, early stage capital. Um, if you get into later rounds of access to capital series B and beyond, it's more available, but it's a huge problem. And with that comes challenges with getting the right talent, right? We compete against Amazon. Uh, if you're in the tech space, you compete against the U.S. that's certainly paying higher prices um, south of the border. And and it's very difficult to mix the right talent and capital to produce, you know, and, stellar and you, companies. And you would know out being out at, at UBC uh, what kind of uh, money has to be thrown around at times in order to retain. And so Genome BC and, and the Triumph people, you know, there are all sorts of uh, entities and institutions that are at UBC that clearly are going to need a lot more money than what we now are throwing around in order to retain people, keep them from taking the IP and their brain cells off to other countries. Absolutely. And even I, we limit entrepreneurship. So it, someone who's building an impressive body of research work where there's some incredible IP that's been developed, uh, taking the route of professor and uh, having a steady salary and, and job security is always more appealing than taking risk, having a zero salary. And, uh, and, and that risk means also accessing the capital you need to really commercialize. Uh, Kirk, you brought up, you know, taking those stem cells or uh, brain cells elsewhere. Uh, why don't you just 3D print them up? If, uh, yeah, that's it's right. Going to be coming down the pipe. That's right. Yeah. 3D print entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. 3D <laughs> print innovators. Yeah. Okay. Well, excellent, guys. Uh, Ami, Ali, Amiel, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa and Amiel Lake. She's entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC, and she's the co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. Stay with us. BIV reporter Patrick Bellenhassett, he joins us after this. Surging economic growth in China, it's come at a very tangible cost for the country. Severe pollution and waste, they are now threatening gains that the economy has made over the past few decades. But China is now pursuing an aggressive effort to reinvent itself as a leader in the developing green economy. The World Economic Forum recently released a commentary examining how the country intends to accomplish its goals. And with us to discuss China's role in the green economy is BIB reporter Patrick Blennerhassett. Good to see you, Patrick. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, I think where people 
express skepticism about this yeah. is that they also hear that China is, of course, one of the great consumers of fossil fuels. Yeah. I, How does a country like that square these two positions? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be, it's possibly one of the biggest 180 degree t- turns that we've ever seen ever. I mean, China, as you said, Kirk, China is a nation built on coal and it's cheap, dirty coal. It's not clean coal. It's not regulated coal. And they basically powered up their society sort of in the 80s and early 90s or even before that in the 70s by using coal as a way to sort of circumvent um, oil, which is hard to extract. You have to import it. You have to export it. You've got to refine it. Coal is you just... And if we're to believe it, that's one of the reasons why we're trying to twin the pipeline. Exactly, yeah. Is to get, you know, oil... To China. Yeah. And China would love to have more oil, but they didn't have that option. They had to sort of dig mines and they had to get their coal and they had to power up their economy. So what the World Economic Forum is saying is basically this is, yeah, like I said, this is the biggest turn we've ever seen for an industrialized nation. If anybody's going to do it, it's going to be China. But I think the problem is, is that like you said, Kirk, there's this dichotomy where China has basically declared a war on pollution and they are making, they're, they're spending a lot of money on green energy and they're spending a lot of money to do this, but they're also, like you said, becoming uh, middle-class industrialized consumers. And Tyler, as you've always mentioned, having lived down in the United States, everybody's got two or three cars, everybody's got a washer and dryer, a big house. So Along with industrialization comes this thirst for things that require fossil fuels. And that's not simply just car gas, that's plastics, that's food, agriculture. These all these all these things require energy to produce. So and I think very much the attitude with regards to the Chinese government is that, well, look at all these other developed economies. We want to get to that particular stage as well. So mm-hmm. the question that I have is if they see that going forward with this green economy, using a lot more renewables, what have you, would actually interfere with economic growth, which one will they pick? Like I, I and Kirk was alluding to this, but I'm kind of, there is skepticism that they would go with, you know, the green versus the economic growth. Yeah. And I think there's sort of two sides to this. I think one, one is that China is obviously using a lot of credit and sort of debt to finance this. Last year, they spent $86.5 billion on solar power. Solar power Which, is, you know, uh, the Trump administration isn't making it super easy for them at this no, point no, either yeah. with regards to tariffs. So that's another issue that they're yeah. going to And the, the thing about solar power is that it's great and it's shiny and it looks cool and it's relatively cheap to build, but it's not incredibly powerful. Um, you've got to build a lot of it. It's got to be in the right place. It's got to have sufficient sun. Um, I think the problem that China's having is the, the problem that every industrialized nation is having is that oil and coal work really well to create energy. Um, hydroelectric dams work really well, but they're incredibly expensive to build. And you hit, as we see, some political roadblocks most of the time. Um, but I don't think like, that would be such an issue in China. Yeah, right? I don't think we'd be seeing a lot of protests over there. Right. But it's still, I mean, there's some great documentaries out there about the numerous cities that China has literally moved to build dams. Um, but even then, that that only powers, those, those are only sort of regional powers that they can create there. And so what China's coming up against is that, yeah, you can go and put fields, acres of solar panels, but 
to power a city like Beijing, Shenzhen, I mean, these massive cities still need coal and they still need oil in exorbitant amount right now. So, And there are some critical choices there for any country uh, that is uh, so quickly growing and that is advancing uh, its internal economy to essentially bring uh, what are hundreds of millions of people into middle class um, uh, status is that you know, you, you're making these choices going forward, and the easiest choice is to continue to carry conventional sources of energy. Mm-hmm. They're they're the cheapest, they're the least risky. Uh, they're in, in a certain sense of the of the technology, and um, they're accessible to you. Yeah. These are harder choices to make. Why do you think? China feels it wants to make this choice. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because I was reading last night and sort of doing a bit of background and I was trying to figure out like what spurred China to do this. And obviously there's the economic benefit and the writing on the wall, but um, there was a lot of sort of literature around <clears throat> when they hosted the Beijing Olympics. And China did a really good job uh, cleaning up their streets and getting rid of the homeless people and putting on a pretty amazing opening and closing ceremonies but they couldn't get rid of the pollution in time. And they were really sort of embarrassed by the international media and the attention around the smog in the city and the high smog rates and all this type of stuff. And I think it was part of a kickstart for them. I think that was sort of, China really wanted to come onto the world stage, show everybody how amazing they were. And then I think what they thought was that a large part of the international media was focusing a lot not necessarily on their human rights, but just the smog in the city. And I mean, there was athletes that didn't even go to Beijing because of that. So it's almost a question of their international legitimacy. Yeah. I mean, China has always kind of had that sort of complex where they, you know, they're very sort of self-aware of how they look to the rest of the world and they want to be seen as a superpower. So reading back on that, that's really when they decided to sort of push things and change things and sort of focus on their cities. And there's three cities that they've been focusing on. Obviously, Shenzhen, uh, the city called Gulin and Taiwan. And together, they have more, their population is more than Canada. Um, And these three cities are all basically focusing on different things. So Shenzhen's sort of becoming the new Hong Kong, basically. It's kind of becoming their sort of innovation and technology engine. And then you've got Gulin, which is basically um, sort of tackling things um, around sort of environmental encroachment. So what they're trying to do is they're preserving all the parkland around that city and just saying, look, you can't build here anymore. We're going to plant trees instead, which is kind of weird for China. But but are these examples of just using experiments to see what would work in any given jurisdiction and yeah. then see if they could transport? plant that to other cities and yeah yeah so they're they're using these cities as as kind of test runs which is really interesting because i don't think you'd be able to do this in sort of a a democratic society and in taiwan is interesting because that's where they're targeting air and water pollution china has a huge issue with clean water so basically what they're doing in that city is that they're revamping the entire water supply and seeing how that they can turn around you know a city of six million uh in terms of water supply so they're, they're undergoing all these experiments in their city, in these cities. And as you guys know, they have kind of carte blanche. They can just kind of come in and do it. They don't have sure. to hold a referendum. They don't have to have a plebiscite. They don't have to have, you know, endless debates about it. So my, then my question is, how are they going 
about doing that? Like, are, are regulars getting regulators getting behind this? How do they go ahead and just implement this on kind of a day to day basis? Well, they don't really have regulators. And that's sort of their double edged sword is that the government basically sets its own regulations. And when they industrialize, they set the regulations to basically drive economic growth. And now Xi Jinping has really sort of backed this idea that we can still have economic growth, but it's not going to come at the cost of basically burning our country to the ground. So, yeah, um, it's in- interesting, Patrick, uh, the, um, I think people believe that somehow they see Chinese investment in Canada and they believe that somehow, you know, we're, we're being uh, overtaken by it to some degree. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there's a net outflow yeah. of resources from Canada to China. We actually, we put more money into China than China puts into us, so to speak. Um, are there great opportunities there for Canadian companies to bring themselves into this space that China seems to want to champion? I think, yeah, I, I mean, that remains to be seen what we can do in terms of our clean tech sector and our technology sector. I mean, if you look at the cost that they're going to spend on this, I mean, it's $19.4 trillion. Um, so there's obviously outside money that's going to be needed there. Um, I think, Kirk, you make a good point. Um, we are a commodity rich, um, we're a commodity rich country. So things like, you know, China's One Belt, One Road initiative, they're going to need a lot of steel. They're going to need a lot of base metals, uh, copper. And those don't uh, pollute at all, right? No, yeah, those <laughs> copper, you know, copper, iron and zinc and stuff like that. Um, they're going to need a lot of lumber, a lot of softwood lumber to sort of build up a lot of this sort of more renewable infrastructure. They're obviously still going to need a lot of oil. So, um I mean, I'm obviously not an expert, but I, I would say, Kirk, maybe the opportunity is more so just increasing trade with China and making sure that we're sort of an open trading partner with them rather than maybe trying to send our clean tech companies over well, there. When, when I was at the Globe conference just a few months ago, maybe a month ago, mm-hmm. I was speaking to at least two companies and I was asking them about prospects in China and they're like, yeah, it looks great. And then as people kind of dive into it, they're like, hmm, like you, you have to sign up with these joint ventures. There's often questions about handing over your intellectual property. There's a lot of people, they maybe don't know how to find the right partners for them. Yeah, There are a lot of requirements being imposed on these Canadian firms if they want to make it into the Chinese market. And mm-hmm. I think that's causing a lot of people to stand back and go, well, I just don't know if it's worth it at this point. Yeah. I remember a senior business leader once said to me, people have been trying to make money from the West in China since Marco Polo. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not worked out very well. But yeah. but there are, uh, there are legitimate business opportunities in there. Uh, the question will be, um, what Canada truly sees at stake in this as, and whether in fact this is uh, one of the real gateways uh, here in the in into the Asia Pacific mm-hmm. for not just uh, commodities but for technology. Yeah, and and you look at companies like Alibaba that are sort of on board with China's sort of expansion and the One Belt One Road initiative. And you wonder and you worry about whether or not China might simply start stealing some of our, you know, better students and our younger executives and people might get sort of the brain drain going over there to work. It's not stealing. It's luring. Luring, yeah. Luring. No, it's and, a good point. And they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're going over there because they see their futures as yeah. being more lucratively assigned uh, than what we're doing here. We have, we have worries, I think, in this country about the feeble ways sometimes that we re- retain some of our best and brightest. And, and oh, so we yeah. lose them to countries like 
China, America, yeah, you know, the UK. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with you. I think right now the race is on to sort of be the technology slash green infrastructure leader of the world. And China has basically come out of the starting blocks faster than anybody. And yeah, I, I mean, if you were looking to really sort of get into the game um, and trying to sort of be on the forefront of things like clean energy, working for a company in Canada would be great, but the regulations and the revenue streams and the potential capital venture, venture capital, I mean, I'd probably rather just head over to Shenzhen and, and Hong Kong or Beijing and just get over where it's really easy and you can just just do it, right? So... Well, uh, Patrick, we'll keep that in mind as you send postcards to us uh, when you're in China uh, in the coming weeks. <laughs> I, but in the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me, guys. That was BIV reporter Patrick Blennerhassett. And you've been listening to BIV Today. I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. That's our show for today. Please, please subscribe to us uh, online and leave five stars on iTunes. You can also find our stories at BIV.com. We'll see you next time.